The following sermon was preached by me, Jeremiah Cox, at the Elm Street Church of Christ in El Reno, Oklahoma. It is my prayer that you are edified by this study, and I encourage you to test all things by the Word of God. In Revelation chapter 1, in verse 8, we read Jesus saying these words, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. That's a very familiar verse, I think, to us. He says it again in the 11th verse of Revelation 1. He'll say it again in the 21st chapter in the 6th verse, and then for a fourth time and final time in that book in chapter 22 and verse 13. And I think he comments on it and explains what he means by it when he says who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. There's not a time where Jesus wasn't, and there isn't a time where Jesus isn't, and there won't be a time where Jesus won't be. He is eternal. He is without beginning. He is without end. And the one who has such nature of eternity and his very being is indeed almighty, which speaks to his eternal power, as we read of in Romans, the first chapter, that in the creation, the eternal power in Godhead is revealed. Alpha, as I'm sure we know, is the first letter of the Greek alphabet, and omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. We might know further that our word alphabet is something which uses the first letter of the Greek alphabet and the second letter of the Greek alphabet to allude to our English alphabet, A through Z. But Jesus doesn't say that he's the Alpha and the Beta. He says he is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning. He's the end. He is eternal and everything in between eternity. And I want to consider some of those matters this evening as we think about the title that Jesus gave himself, the description which he ascribed to himself, I am the Alpha and the Omega. As with many of the names that are given him and the descriptions of himself that he subscribes to in the New Testament as he speaks to the people, the Alpha and the Omega pairs him up with the one and only true God of the universe. In the Old Testament, God refers to himself in a similar fashion. In Isaiah 41 and verse 4, God says, Who has performed and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am the first. And with the last, I am he. In the 44th chapter, in verse 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. And in the 48th chapter of Isaiah, in verse 12, God says, Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, my called. I am he, I am the first, and I am also the last. And so when Jesus says that I am the Alpha and the Omega, especially those who know the Greek language would have understood he's talking about the fact that he is the beginning and the end. He's the first, and he is the last, and of course, everything in between. And this, especially to those of a Hebrew audience who had become Christians, would have reminded them of the description of God that he is the first and he is the last. I want us to especially understand and and note what is added to that description of God in Isaiah 44 and verse 6. Again, he says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. But I want us to notice this. 
He says, besides me, there is no God. And so what he does is he alludes to his eternity. He shows that he is eternal. He is the first. He is the last. But what he is saying in saying this is as he is the first and the last is that he is the only first and the only last. He's the only eternal one. There's none other who have ever lived and ever will live who can rightly say, I am the first and I am the last. Of course, aside from those who partake in that one divine nature and we can understand this. This was a key principle in the Jewish faith, and it is in our faith as Christians. In Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4, we read the prayer that Israel said every single day called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, Deuteronomy 6, 4, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. The Lord is one, and they understood that. And that was especially needed to be understood by the children of Israel as they went in to conquer the Canaan land because what God wanted them to do is avoid idolatry. Don't be like the nations. They serve many gods that are not actual gods but are mere erections of physical matter. And I'm the one and only true God. And we need to recite that. We need to think about that. You need to teach that to your children, Deuteronomy 6 says, that the Lord our God is one. And he applies that to their worship. Since the Lord our God is one, you shall love the Lord with your whole heart, with your whole soul, with all your strength. That is, your allegiance, your worship, your fidelity, it can't be divided. If you are worshiping Jehovah with all of your heart, soul, and strength, then there is nothing left for any other God. And that's what he wanted them to understand. He is the one and only true God, the eternal God. In 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 4, the Apostle Paul alludes to that when considering the eating of meats offered to idols and talking about knowledge, but needing to have knowledge coupled with your love so that you don't cause a weak brother to stumble. He says, therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 4, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. We know this. For even if there are so-called gods, he says, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we for him. He's not denying the fact that you could walk through the streets of Athens and see more gods than there were people. That's a description that historians give, that it was easier to find a god in Athens than it was to find a man. There's a lot of idols. There's a lot of false gods. But the point Paul is making is that although we see all of the altars, we see all of the inscriptions, we see all of the physical representations carved by the hands of men, that there's actually nothing there. There's no true power behind that. There's no true entity behind that. There's no true divine person behind that. We know that there's only one. And that's why they recite the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, 4. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. I want us to notice, though, in verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 8, what he adds to that. When he says that there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things and we for him. He also says, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live. He says, from the Father of whom are all things and of Jesus Christ through whom are all things. And we understand that there's an intimate connection between the two. That the one and only true God is Jehovah, but also is Jesus. And we could add the Holy Spirit, which is not really part of our, our discussion this evening. We know that those three are one in the divine nature. There is one divine nature shared by three divine persons. And Jesus is one of them. 
And that was part of his coming to earth, was to tell everyone that he was indeed God so that he could manifest the Father to the world. In John 1, in verses 1 through 3, John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Now something interesting happens in verse 14, as we're all aware of, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We need to try to grasp how profound that statement is. That word dwelt could literally be translated tabernacled. That that word became flesh and tabernacled among us. We know the tabernacle under the old law was the representative dwelling place of Jehovah, the one and only true God that they spoke of in the Shema of Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4. The Lord our God is one and his presence is with us in the tabernacle. While that was a mere representation of God's dwelling, he really wasn't in that tabernacle. He wasn't confined by those tents or the walls of the temple. We understand that Jesus was actually in the flesh. That was God. It was God and man, but it was God. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. He came to reveal God to men. And he not only claimed this, but he claimed that it was absolutely necessary to believe him in his claims. In John the 8th chapter, in verse 21, Jesus speaking to a group of Jews who did indeed believe him to some extent. He said, I am going away and you will seek me and will you, you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Because he says, where I go, you cannot come. And he said to them, you are from beneath. I am from above. You are from this world. I'm not from this world or of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. One of the interesting things that we know of as we read the New Testament is that a lot of these people who could rightly be marked as unbelievers at some point in time were at least being led to the belief that this man Jesus is indeed the Messiah that was prophesied of in the Old Testament. One of their hangups was the fact that he taught the Messiah was indeed the Son of God. We see that when Jesus asked the question to the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 22, says, the, the Messiah, who do, whose son do you say he is? The Christ. And they talk about the son of David. Certainly that is the case. But he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. How then can he be his son? He's saying he's not only the physical son of David. That's what they understood. He could trace his lineage back. He said he's also the son of God. And Jesus says here, if you don't believe that I am he, that is, not only just the Messiah, but the Messiah who is indeed the Son of God, you will die in your sins. We see him make the famous claim later on in that chapter when he says in verse 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad when they were tending to reject him. And the Jews said, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He's saying, I I am the eternal God, the Alpha and the Omega. Remember in Exodus when Moses was commissioned to go to Pharaoh and lead the children of Israel out of Egypt, he said, what am I going to say to them when I go to them? How are they going to know? He said, tell them I am sent you. And Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. In Colossians, the first chapter, the Apostle Paul, by inspiration, notes the eternal nature of Jesus and the fact to which that leads of his preeminence, which shows us that as he is preeminent in authority and in 
existence as the eternal one that God had determined salvation would be through him. And if salvation is through him because of his preeminence and his eternal nature, then it is necessary to believe in his eternal nature. The Apostle Paul writes, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, not in the sense of being created, but in the sense from which all things proceed as the creator. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Notice this. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. He's saying, since I am the Alpha and the Omega, I am the eternal God, I am the preeminent one through whom God determined salvation would come. The only reconciliation to the Father is through the one who reveals the Father and is the one who is God in the flesh. You have to believe that I am He. You have to submit to my teaching. You have to come to me. This is why Jesus said in John 14 and verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I think we will understand that. One thing we also have to continue to remind ourselves of is with this idea that Jesus is the eternal God, the Alpha and the Omega, we need to realize and comprehend that he's the only one that truly lasts. In our lives, we're faced with myriad amount of temptations. We're faced with trials and tribulations. We're, we're faced with these pleasures that the devil dangles before us as James chapter 1 talks about are the lures that we're pulled by. We've got to understand that those things aren't lasting. There's not any substance in them, but the one who truly lasts is Jesus. We can understand that as we read a book like Hebrews, which is written to individuals who had become Christians, but were slouching toward apostasy, much because they were under the weight of persecution by those who were their Jewish brethren who had rejected the Christ. And part of their apostasy was not just falling away from Jesus into the world, but falling away from Jesus back into the Hebrew faith, which was nailed to the cross. And throughout Hebrews, we see the word better. I think it's there 13 times in the book of Hebrews. And there is a comparison between Christ and a contrast, a lot more likely, between Christ and the old law, showing how Christ is far better than the old law. And a lot of those contrasts and a lot of the ways in which the Hebrew writer emphasizes that Christ is indeed better is because the old law was passing away. In fact, was made obsolete by the time that letter was written. But Jesus is eternal. He's lasting. And so the altars they were turning to, the temple they were turning to, the physical things and, and, and matters of worship they were turning back to would soon pass away, especially as it pertained to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Don't turn to that. That won't last. Turn to Jesus. In Hebrews 1 and verse 8, it speaks of Christ's throne as being forever and ever. In Hebrews 7 and verse 21, it tells us that he is a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, where the throne under the old law was actually temporal. The throne of Christ in heaven is eternal. And where the priesthood under the old law was temporal, especially as it pertained to the individual priest, they died. Jesus will never die. He says in chapter 7 of Hebrews in verse 23, 
Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death for continuing, but he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And in chapter 10 and verse 14, we see his forever sacrifice. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Which is why he ends this epistle with these words, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, at least the last section of his epistle. They needed to realize that this old law and this system of faith had passed away, and that soon to come in the destruction of Jerusalem, there would be nothing left of it. Even the records that they held so dear to their hearts as they traced their lineage back throughout the Jewish people would be destroyed, and no one could ever establish their connection with their ancestors. We need to take that as a lesson, though, as we look at the things of the world. In 1 John 2 and verse 17, John warns the people and encourages them to follow God by saying that the world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. A lot of times we rationalize when we're tempted, and oftentimes when we rationalize, that's when we sin. We yield to temptation because what we try to tell ourselves is that it'll be worth it that there's actually something of substance here, it's important here, and we're going to to yield to it to satisfy that desire. But he says even that desire is not going to last. In heaven there will be no temptation. After those things in the world will be melted and burnt up, those matters of the flesh aren't going to allure us anymore. There will just be spiritual death or spiritual life. That's why God says those matters which pertain to his will and the one who partakes of them abides forever. And essentially, that is what Christ is composed of. You abide in Christ, you abide forever. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus is the eternal God. And very closely connected to that, as we alluded to in John 1 and verse 1, Jesus is the incarnate Word. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and that Word became flesh. As we noted before, Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. And with an alphabet, if you have all of the letters, we would say from A to Z, the Greeks would say from Alpha to Omega, you have everything you need to convey any message. You put those letters together to perform words and, or form words, and you put those words together to form sentences and, and paragraphs and full books and messages and ideas and wills and plans. Jesus, as the Alpha and the Omega, is not only the eternal God, but he is the eternal word. He is the word which became flesh to reveal God to us. In the 14th chapter of John, in verses 8 through 9, John 14 in verses 8 through 9, Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and it is sufficient for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father Do you not believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. I think I messed up and left some scriptures on there that don't pertain to this point. He became flesh and he reveals the Father. What he is telling Philip at that time is that Whatever reveals God, which they understood, God revealed himself to the fathers uh, through the prophets, as we read in Hebrews chapter 1 and verses 1 and 2. 
Jesus says, I am that word now. When you hear me, what I'm doing is revealing the Father. When you see the works that I do, those are a part of God's plan. We, we think about that. We, we see Jesus in the scripture. Everything that we're supposed to be as we submit to the word of God can be seen in the life of Christ. That's what he's saying. I am the embodiment of all that we see in the gospel. From Matthew to Revelation, Jesus is revealed in every single word, in every single doctrine, in every single moral practice, in everything, Jesus is revealed. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verses 1 through 2, God in times past spoke to the fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken by his son. And in the 12th chapter in verse 25, the Hebrew writer warns, see that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, how much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven? Jesus, as the Alpha and the Omega, has all that was necessary to compile the complete word of God. And what God is telling us is you need to hear him. Albert Barnes comments on this idea of Jesus being the Alpha and the Omega in his commentary. He said that among the Jewish rabbis, it was common to use the first and the last letters of the Hebrew alphabet to denote the whole of anything from beginning to end. Thus it is said that Adam transgressed the whole law from Aleph, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, to Ta, the last letter. And Abraham kept the whole law from Aleph to Ta. We can rightly say, as we've heard, I'm sure, before, that 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 man has it down from A to Z, or he knows it all from A to Z. We talk about a book. He knows it from the front to the back, the cover to cover. And that's exactly what we see here with Jesus. The Alpha and the Omega, he is eternal, but he is that eternal word. He is that eternal word in completion. He doesn't just say he's only the Alpha and only the Omega. When he says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, he includes all the letters in between. He's the entirety of that. And he is that incarnate word. We read in Jude verse 3 that the faith, that is the object of faith, the gospel of Christ was once for all delivered to the saints. And that directly pertains to the fact that Jesus is that prophet who was to come. Deuteronomy, Moses spoke that there would be a prophet that would come after him that is like him. Him you shall hear. Jesus spoke of that in Matthew the 17th chapter, at least God did when he called down from heaven that this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And the presence was Moses and Elijah who likely represented the Mosaic old law, the first five books of the law, and then the prophets and Elijah and Jesus was there and God said, hear him. And Moses and Elijah weren't there anymore. He is the one we should hear. He is the complete word. And this is Jesus's understanding of any revelation of God, that we should not just keep the alpha, we should not just keep the beta, but we should keep from the alpha to the omega, if you will. He words it this way as it pertains to the Hebrew law in Matthew 5 and verse 17 in his Sermon on the Mount. He says, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill for as for assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law until all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, 
you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. We see kind of a similar phrasing there by Jesus in verse 18 when he says one jot and one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. A jot was the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet and the tittle is likened to our cross of the T or the dot of an I. It's a, it's a little point that makes a great distinction between other letters and changes entire meanings of words. He's saying from the smallest point of the law to the greatest point of the law, we could say from A to Z, from Aleph to Ta, from Alpha to Omega, you'd better keep my law. All of it is valid. All of it is important. You know, a lot of people try to talk about how they love Jesus and how Jesus is important to them and how they follow Jesus, but they follow hardly any of what he says. In John 14 and verse 15, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Knowing Jesus is knowing the word and knowing the word is knowing Jesus. So when people say they know Jesus, but they don't know a lick about the New Testament, they don't really know Jesus. When people say that they're following Jesus, but they're not following the commands and the patterns set forth in the New Testament, they're not following Jesus. When people say they're following Jesus and they keep part of the New Testament, but other parts they pick and choose to throw out, they're not really following Jesus. We've got to be complete in our obedience to God's law. Keep every jot and tittle, obey Jesus and accept Jesus and follow Jesus as the revealing word of God from Alpha to Omega. Because as Jesus warns, he rejects me and does not receive my words, has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. And it won't be half of that word or three-fourths of that word, but the entire word that judges us in the last day. You know, also, as we think of Jesus as the Alpha and the Omega, there's an idea of sufficiency that we can't ignore Alpha and Omega, as we've said before, would include all of the letters in between, not laying claim to just the two, but the entirety. And from A to Z in our English alphabet, we can spell any word. There may be words we don't know, but if we knew them, we could spell them with the alphabet. If you want to convey a message and you know all the letters of the alphabet, you can convey that message. It's sufficient. There's no word that we can think up of in our English language or that was in the Koine Greek language where there were letters that were missing. You can't form that word because you don't have all the letters. The alphabet was complete. And as Jesus says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, he's saying I'm sufficient. I'm sufficient for all things as it pertains to life and godliness and salvation according to God's will. And I'm sufficient for you and your life. And we need to view him as such. In Colossians, the second chapter, the Apostle Paul alluded to the sufficiency that is in Christ as it pertains to spiritual matters. In verses 1 through 3, the Apostle Paul's deep and intense concern for those brethren in Colossae is manifested. He was, as we know, an apostle to the Gentiles, and the Colossians would be included in that ministry. But as we read in Colossians 2 and verse 1 that there were some who have not seen his face in the flesh, it is likely so that these brethren he's writing to haven't seen his face in the flesh. We read in other places in Scripture where Paul had not seen brethren for a while or never before, and it was his intense desire to go meet them face to face. There's something more meaningful and, and fluid and important and sufficient about meeting face to face. 
And I want us to notice what especially he was concerned about. He said, I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all riches, to the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and of knowledge. The reason why he wanted to be with them in the flesh face to face is to have a better way of effectively teaching them. I don't want to impart knowledge to you and wisdom to you. And maybe it had something to do with laying hands on them and them receiving spiritual gifts as he wrote to the Roman church in Romans 1 and verse 11 that those spiritual gifts would establish them. I think we alluded to that this morning in the sermon. He wanted them to be established in the matters of Christ because in him are hidden those treasures of wisdom and knowledge, which is why he proceeded in verse 4 to warn about matters which are contrary to the words of Christ and then encouraged to walk in Christ. He said, Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in the Spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. We need not be allured by other doctrines and matters that have been devised in the hearts of men. And that was the problem in the Colossian church. The Apostle Paul was saying, don't listen to those doctrines. As we read in other places in Scripture, there's a way in which you can tell those were not from Christ. You can test them by what you know already and what has been given to you. He says those are deceptive words. Maintain steadfastness in the faith, that is the gospel, the object of faith which is maintaining steadfastness in Christ. And then he goes on to explain his adamant warning in verse 8. Beware lest anyone cheat you. You'll be cheated. There's no sufficiency in those words. The sufficiency is in Christ. Beware lest you be cheated through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Notice that, that we're complete in him. If you want to get to heaven, if you want to be a mature Christian, if, if, if we want to do everything that God wants us to do, be all God wants us to be, the key is walking in Christ. And I know that that seems obvious, but sometimes we think, our think ourselves out of, of things. We, we think of it in, in this regard. If we want to lose weight or get physically fit, there's a lot of people who offer these alternative routes. You, you can do this, take this supplement, or do this trick, or do this thing, or read this book, and it'll tell you exactly how to lose weight a little faster than everybody else, like there's some trick to it. We know good and well, even though we may deceive ourselves and convince ourselves otherwise from time to time, that the way in which you get in shape and maybe lose weight, be healthier, is eating right and exercising. It's that simple. Anyone who can lose weight can lose weight because of those two things. They may be in different forms or plans, but it's ultimately diet and exercise. Change your diet and make sure you burn those calories and get in shape. And it's the same thing as it pertains to spiritual life. How are we going to grow closer to God? There's no trick to it. There's no formula that is secret that some people have figured out and other people haven't. What Paul is saying is that it's not by persuasive words. It's not by philosophy. It's not by stories. It's not by anything other than Christ. You're complete in him. 
which means if we're not reading the scripture, we're not looking at the alpha to the omega of God's New Testament, his word that is inspired of him, we cannot be complete as a spiritual man. But we can take this further. We're certainly complete in all spiritual matters, but all things that are subsets of that and other matters of life, we can find sufficiency in Christ. And I think that's one of the longings of mankind. We want something that is consistent and sufficient. That's what we do when we go to eat food. We want enough food that is sufficient to fill us. That's what we do when we we look at other matters of life, perhaps finding a job. We want a job that sufficiently pays so that we can pay the bills and live a comfortable life. We want sufficiency in life, essentially. There's so many other examples. And what Jesus says is that as the Alpha and the Omega, I am sufficient and you'll find sufficiency in me. That's why Paul says in Philippians 4 and verse 13, I can do all things, not some things, all things from A to Z or from Alpha to Omega through Christ who strengthens me. Of course, he's talking about matters pertaining to spiritual life, to faith, namely in that passage, contentment in Christ. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Included in that would be a sufficiency in matters of temptation. This temptation is just too much. I don't have enough strength. I don't know how, how to get through this. I don't have the resources And Jesus says, wait a second, if you walk in me, if you lean upon me, you are sufficient because no temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. We have a sufficiency when we're tempted, if we lean upon Christ, and we even have a sufficiency in physical matters. You know, a lot of times the best way that we can give ourselves some peace of mind and stability and sufficiency in physical matters is to devote ourselves to God. And we try to think ourselves out of that. How is spending more time on God and his word and the kingdom of God and his righteousness going to help me in this physical matter when it takes away from my focus on work? Well, because of God and how trustworthy he is. Jesus said in Matthew 6 and verse 33, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. There is sufficiency even in physical necessities in Jesus. Every single thing we need to be right with God and to be comfortable and sufficient in this life is going to be supplied to us. God is faithful. He's promised, and he'll give it. Paul noted in Philippians 4.19 that God will supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. I would add one thing, though, that we've got to trust in him. We've got to lean on the one who is rightly described as the Alpha and the Omega. We've got to believe that there is sufficiency in Christ, not looking for other places for that fulfillment or that sufficiency and stability, but looking on the one who is truly sufficient. We lean on him, as Proverbs says in Proverbs 3 and verse 5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths, especially, of course, as it pertains to our spiritual walk with God. We will have a sufficiency in spiritual guidance in this life. And lastly, Jesus, as the Alpha and the Omega, shows that he sees things through. He doesn't stop. He's there at the beginning, the Alpha, And he's going to be there at the end, the Omega. He has a plan that started, as all plans have to start, and he's going to finish that plan. You know, a lot of times we might hear that phrase, you know, so-and-so started the fight, but so-and-so finished the fight. 
And when a person finishes it, that's what matters. They were the victor. And Jesus says, I started it and I finished it. I started it with the plan in Ephesians, the first chapter, in the first several verses, we read of the eternal blessings of a spiritual nature in Christ Jesus. Notice the language there. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That that connects with John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. In the beginning means that before the beginning, God was there. Christ was there. And God chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us as to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. And Jesus was a part of that plan. Jesus was there when the plan was devised in the quiet chambers of eternity. He is the Alpha. And he was there when man fell. In, in Genesis 3 and verse 15, when God pronounced the curse upon the serpent, in the very beginning of all that we know, Jesus was a part of that curse and the plan and prophecy of that enemy to fall at the hands of, or we might see under the feet of, the Messiah. Genesis 3 and verse 15, to the serpent, God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He witnessed the fall of man and he witnessed the plan begin to unfold for man to receive redemption and victory as according to God's plan. And then he manifested himself. He became flesh and it became flesh for the purpose of fulfilling said plan. And this was something that was from the alpha of to the omega of his physical life on earth. From the very beginning, Jesus was seeking his father's will. Remember in Luke 2 when he was with his mother and father as they went to Jerusalem. And then as they went back to their home, they could not find Jesus. And they found him in the temple. And he said, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? He's 12 years old here. And he's seeking his father's will. As we alluded to in Matthew 5 and verses 17 through 18, he shows that he didn't come to destroy the law and the prophets. He came to fulfill. And he's going to make sure that nothing is going to pass away until it's all fulfilled. Every jot and tittle. I'm not going to leave out one word of the prophecies and of the will of God in the Old Testament. All the promises of the Messiah and of salvation, of the kingdom of heaven and of all of the spiritual blessings that are alluded to and prophesied about. Jesus is going to make sure they're secured in his death, which is why in John 19 and verse 30, we have recorded for us that Jesus had received the sour wine. He said it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. He saw it through from the beginning to the end. When he was 12 years old, I must be about my father's business. That led him to the cross where he drew his last breath and said, it is finished. The father's will, that is. And he will establish us to the end. He reigns in heaven for eternity. Death did not keep him. The grave did not stifle him. But he overcame that death. And reigns at the right hand of the throne of God so that he can bring us home with him. In Hebrews 12 and verse 2, after looking to the great cloud of witnesses, all of those heroes of faith in chapter 11, the Hebrew writer says that we are to look unto Jesus who is the author and finisher of our faith. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, 
and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Him being the author and finisher of our faith is kind of like saying he is the alpha and the omega of our faith. He's the beginning of our faith as he is the originator. He nailed the old law to the cross and provided the perfect sacrifice and the blood that was sufficient to wash away sins. And by that, we're born again into a new creature created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's the faith that we walk in as we walk in Christ each and every day. And he is the originator of that. But not only the originator, he's going to see it through to the end. He is the finisher of our faith, bringing us to the end of our faith. We read of in First Peter chapter 1 and verse 9, which is the salvation of our souls. We see a little bit about how Jesus keeps us in Jude 24 and 25, that he is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power both now and forever. Amen. He's able to keep us to that great day. So where when we stand before the judgment seat of God, we are blameless and without fault. But as he noted in that particular text, we are to keep ourselves in the love of God. He will, if we do that, establish us to the end. And then the end comes when he is glorified and we are glorified in him. In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 24, that end is described Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father and when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet but when he says all things are under him it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him then the Son himself will also be subject to him put all things under him that God may be all in all. Hebrews, the second chapter, gives us an assurance of that victory, that Jesus will indeed finish it, not just because he said it, but because he's gave us, he's given us proof and evidence to the fact. Hebrews 2 talks about how he tasted death for everyone, and by the conquering of that death, destroyed the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, and releases those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And so when Paul, by inspiration, writes about that end and that victory, when God brings victory to those of his followers and ultimately to God and delivers that kingdom back to him, destroying that enemy. He doesn't speak as if he's hoping against hope, but he speaks as if if it is a reality. You know, the book of Revelation, where we saw the phrase, I am the Alpha and the Omega four times, is a book of victory in Jesus. We studied that not long ago in the Wednesday night Bible class. Last lesson concluded with a look briefly at Revelation The book begins with the description, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, the one who was, who is, and is to come, the Almighty. And in verse 17 of Revelation chapter 1, this is what Jesus says to John, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. It says, I have the keys of Hades and death, saying, I'm in control of them. Don't wonder about whether the victory is coming. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. You had better believe it is coming. That is, as the introduction to the seven churches that were written, uh, to the seven letters written to the seven churches in Asia from Revelation 2 to 3. And in all of those, in spite of some of the negative descriptions of those churches, he promises that those who repent and overcome will receive matters of salvation. At the end of each one of those letters, he's saying victory is coming, and I who am promising you those am the one who can bring it. Because as the Alpha and the Omega, 
I am victorious. The whole revelation ends with that concept. In Revelation 22 and verse 12, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Because he is the eternal God who is all-powerful, all-sufficient, and almighty, as we read in Revelation 1.8, he's the one who will gain the victory. And all who are in him, in the end, will be victorious. We've got to find our worth and purpose in the Alpha and the Omega. We've got to follow him as he is the beginning and end from beginning to end. We've got to commit ourselves entirely to him, not partially. But all of those letters of the Greek alphabet are included in that phrase, the Alpha and the Omega, and we've got to be dedicated to, 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 to following the entirety of God's commands. I want to challenge you as we leave this place to think about this as it pertains to our everyday life. If Jesus is the most important matter of existence, he is the Alpha and the Omega, he is the eternal God, then shouldn't our lives be filled with him? We might say that the start and finish of every single one of our days should start and finish with Jesus in some way. Our days should be filled with him, if not but just as we live by faith in the gospel and let Christ live in us. We'll end the lesson, of course, with an invitation. We want you to have the hope of an eternal life in heaven with the one who is rightly described as the Alpha and the Omega. He's the only one that can offer you that salvation. And if you come to him in faith and respond to his word, he will save you. In Revelation 22 and verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come and let him who hears say, come and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. That's the Lord's invitation. That's the Alpha and the Omega speaking to you this evening. And you would do well to take advantage of that invitation to be baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins. If you have obeyed the gospel and there's any other thing that we can assist you with of a spiritual nature, the invitation is also extended to you. Come forward while we stand and sing the song that was selected.